Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, will we see another taper tantrum this summer? We will also take a deep dive into the world of cryptocurrency. That's with our guest, founder and CEO of Eagle Brook Advisors, Chris King. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. Some good earnings data recently and overall positive performance. What are we watching for? Well, we're recording this towards the very end of May, and we've had some good data. But, you know, the market's basically been running in place the last few weeks, and we've had a great start to the quarter, a great start to the year. We've had a great one-year return. The market has just taken a positive refresh. We're just kind of consolidating right now. All right. Well, at the last Fed meeting, um, we saw some signs that the central bank may start thinking about a pullback and easy money policy. How is that playing out in the markets? And what do you think it indicates for the economy long term? Well, at this point, I don't think the market believes the Fed at this point. I mean, interest rates have actually gone down a little bit, but it is a valid discussion point because we're going to get to that point where they're going to have to do something. But I guess the reality of it is the Federal Reserve is a lagging indicator and we're probably going to see inflation or reflation if we do in fact get it before the Fed's going to do anything about it. In my opinion, that means diversify portfolios and inflation and reflation trades will probably continue to keep working, such as real assets or commodities or real estate investment trust, uh, value stocks, small cap stocks, precious metals, and even the topic of today's podcast, cryptocurrencies. Well, let's bring in our guest, founder and CEO of Eaglebrook Advisors in Washington, D.C., Chris King. Chris, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you, Rusty and Robin. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, before we get started, we need to know what we should be listening to right now. Rusty? Yep. This is always the most difficult question of the podcast. I hope you're ready, Chris. We need that walk-up song. We need that song we can hear in the background as you come up for this podcast interview. What's that song going to be? Yeah. So I thought about this. So I chose Fortunate Son by uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR. Come on, man. You're too young to pick that song. Why do you pick that song? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was thinking about the, uh, you know, the demographic that we were going after. And, you know, that does song have a lot of energy. Um, you know, you want to pick something when you're walking up to the plate, right? That gets you fired up. So that was the thought process behind that. And the song does have some uh, countercultural tones to it. And when you think of crypto, it's kind of the counterculture of the finance world. So it all ties together what we'll be talking about in this podcast today. That was a smart answer. I think we should ask all our guests their motivations for picking their song moving forward. That was smart. I like it. And you know what? You're probably right. That song probably would be one of the more popular walk-up songs we've had so far, I bet. All right. Well, Chris, you are the founder and CEO of Eaglebrook Advisors in D.C. Your firm specializes in Bitcoin and digital assets. Can you tell us more about Eaglebrook and its specialties? Yes, of course. So we're a tech-driven investment manager that does specialize in Bitcoin and digital assets. What we do is we operate a separately managed account platform that's secure and compliant for 
wealth managers and specifically RIAs. So right now we work with 25 RIA partners and 200 financial advisors on a weekly basis and help educate them on this asset class and also help them access and execute investment to this asset class as well. Right now, we're mainly focused on Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is what we view as the blue chip assets that are in this market. And we think that advisors should understand the investment cases for both Bitcoin and Ethereum before diving into you know, the more esoteric assets like DeFi, NFTs, you know, layer two solutions, scalability, things that we can get into in this podcast. But we focus you know, mainly on those two right now. They have the most liquidity. You know, the regulatory guidance around those two are the most clear. So we typically you know, start with those um, and then help advisors understand you know, all the other new technologies and uh, crypto assets and digital assets that are available in this market. Well, crypto and digital assets are a part of the general lexicon. I mean, we hear about them on the news a lot, but they can still be hard to understand. How do you describe cryptocurrencies to people struggling to grasp how they work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And typically where I start is by um, helping people understand the terminology where when you hear cryptocurrency, you think of something that's going to be a currency that you're going to pay for your coffee or your dinner or your, your computer with. That is not really what these are. And then at the same time, the investment case for Bitcoin is very different from Ethereum. So I like to take a step back and talk about the investment case for Bitcoin, which I believe the best way to describe Bitcoin is as an emerging store of value. Right. It's not a store value yet. It's extremely volatile. Right. It's emerging as digital gold, but it is emerging as a store value and it has the qualities of you know, strong qualities of a store value characteristic. So we closely follow Paul Tudor Jones's investment thesis on how he thinks about Bitcoin and his you know, allocation to Bitcoin, where you look at the four characteristics of a good store of value is trustworthiness, liquidity, portability and purchasing power, starting with the, the one that's probably the hardest to understand, which is trustworthiness. When you think about stores of value like gold, like the US dollar, all of these things, it depends on how many people actually trust it as a store of value. Bitcoin has estimated between 100 million to 150 million investors that store and trust over $800 billion worth of wealth in that asset right now, right? So it does have a uh, trustworthiness aspect to it. And that's only growing over time as it has a similar adoption curve to the internet. And as we see, you know, that adoption curve staying the same uh, over the next five years, we believe Bitcoin can reach over a billion users on a five-year time horizon. So that's kind of the, the trustworthy part of it. And then the second piece is purchasing power, right? Bitcoin has retained its purchasing power over a longer term period. While it is volatile in the short terms, and sometimes it might take you two to three years to realize your initial investment. If you look at this as a longer term investment that's actually illiquid, even though it is a liquid asset, it has retained its purchasing power over time. So that's kind of the second piece. The third piece is liquidity. Bitcoin is as liquid as you know, any FANG stock, about $30 billion of average daily trading volume, so you can get in and out of it. The fourth being portability, where this is more relevant for people in other jurisdictions. People you know, historically use gold as a store of value, and that's how they've you know, stored their wealth. And it was the alternative to volatile sovereign currencies in other jurisdictions. But it's difficult to move gold in and out of crunches, right? It's not very borderless. 
Bitcoin is a Swiss bank account in your pocket where I can move across countries and across borders with $10 million worth of Bitcoin in my head, which makes it you know, native to the internet and very portable across different regions you know, and different types of jurisdictions. So looking at those four areas of what a store value is, we believe Bitcoin ranks fairly high on all of them. And because it has these built-in network effects, it's only increasing in trust increasing in liquidity and continuing to retain its purchasing power as adoption continues is driven for multiple different factors, which, you know, we can get into why institutions are adopting it. Obviously, you talked about quantitative easing and how that drives adoption for sound money. Um, That's kind of the initial thought process on what Bitcoin is. It's an emerging store of value. It's volatile right now because it's still in this price discovery mode where investors like the 200 advisors that we're talking to, it was the first time they allocated to this asset class after going through all the actual characteristics that Bitcoin has as money and as a store of value. So we think as more people learn about it, right, price discovery continues over the next five to 10 years, um, it can reach its fair market value, which we believe is in the trillions of dollars. So that's kind of what the thought process of what Bitcoin is, has strong store value characteristics like gold, and it's only going to increase with adoption over time because it it has that viral uh, network effects in that flywheel. Now, how's Ethereum different than Bitcoin? Kind of contrasting. So how I think of Bitcoin is it has a single use case It's meant to store value and that's it. And that's what it's supposed to be really good at as an alternative to gold or fiat currencies and things like that. Ethereum, on the other hand, is more like an Internet protocol similar to HTML, right? And HTML is the Internet protocol that Amazon, Google, Netflix and Facebook built their large companies and their applications on top of. Ethereum is also a protocol that's allowing all of these smart technologists and developers and entrepreneurs build the next wave of these internet applications on top of, which enables new business models, right? New types of financial products. Ethereum is that base layer that we believe the most capital, human capital, and also capitals moving towards building on top of Ethereum as most of the market, you know, in terms of people building on HTML and web browsers and things like that, all of those have been built out. So now everyone's building, you know, on top of Ethereum as this base layer enabling new business models. So that's kind of how we see it, where it's competing more against, you know, traditional financial technology companies, traditional banking companies, enabling new business models like we've seen with digital art and NFTs as of recently. And we're still at the very early stages of commercial applications. So it's a lot of tinkering that was done, you know, in the late 80s and 90s in terms of, you know, computers and how the internet was going to play out from a software perspective. That's the stage where we're at right now, where we're not going to see truly killer apps in major, you know, I would say mainstream adopted commercial applications for kind of three to five years. So I think these are like powerful arguments for long-term investors to consider cryptocurrencies. But to kind of twist the question a little bit, when it comes to be a financial advisor thinking about building investment portfolios for their clients, how much of a sense of urgency should they have to include crypto in those portfolios? I mean, should the hair be on fire to understand and implement crypto or should they let it mature a little longer? So I think that's a good question. And it's two questions. It's one on client suitability and also how you want to run your practice. What we're seeing from an advisor perspective is that understanding how Bitcoin and crypto works from an education perspective is now defensive as opposed to offensive, right? Advisors need to be able to talk about it articulately with clients or their clients are going to go somewhere else. 
most of the advisors and RAs that we work with, it's not driven from the CIO level. It's actually driven by the client demand level. So it's a way to engage with clients at a deeper level and show that you actually are adding value in all areas of you know, investment management and how you're running their portfolios, as well as retaining assets where we're seeing clients move to advisors that actually have access to Bitcoin and Ethereum and understand how it works instead of just saying, oh, it's tulip mania. I don't understand how it works. You shouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. That's not a great way to engage with clients. But from a volatility perspective, right, where you saw a 40% drawdown, there's a lot of clients that can't stomach that and that wouldn't be suitable for them. But if the advisor and the client you know, can come together and understand that this does have a place in the portfolio and it is as volatile as you know an Amazon or Google or any of those earlier stage te- uh, tech stocks in the early 90s, if you weren't comfortable with volatility back then, you would have never invested in those. So we're at that stage in terms of uh, you know technology's maturity or at the use stage as opposed to kind of the later stage of those companies. Hey, Chris, I think you actually just gave us a kind of a, a finalist on the short list of teasers for our podcast. I liked how you said advisors need to know how to talk about crypto. It's not like before it was like going on offense talking about it, but now it's like playing defense. I like that. All right, so let's twist it again a little bit more. What are the best arguments against cryptocurrency and how do you rebut or respond to those arguments? Mm -hmm. So I'd say the number one that we're getting right now from investors and advisors is regulatory concerns. Um, And that's in the U.S., that's in China, that's in all these different jurisdictions as crypto trades 24-7, 365 in over 200 countries. But from a U.S. perspective, I think that is actually a very small risk. Because if the U.S. were to ban Bitcoin, which is somewhat of a concern, it'd be similar to banning gold, right? And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Most of the regulatory bodies have actually given regulatory clarity on Bitcoin, right? The CFTC and the SEC have deemed it a commodity and it's treated as such right now. And the IRS has deemed it as property, right? So there's clarity on how it should be taxed and how it should be regulated. As a RA ourselves... What we're looking for is Bitcoin to be even more regulated, right? More regulated markets, more regulatory clarity on what qualified custody looks like, because then the case for owning Bitcoin in a secure structure just increases from both an RIA and investor perspective, as well as from an institutional perspective. So we're hoping that there's more regulations on Bitcoin um, and don't think you know Bitcoin being banned is likely. So that's probably the number one thing we get from from advisors when trying to understand. The second, which was brought up last week, and I think was the big part of the recent sell-off, was the environmental concerns around Bitcoin and how China is pushing a lot of the miners out of the country. I actually believe the opposite. I believe Bitcoin is leading a green revolution as access to green energy is increasing in terms of how much is being mined on the Bitcoin hash rate, meaning what percentage of the network is green versus using coal or other types of energy. And I think more people are investing into hydroelectric, solar, wind, and eventually because you can access, you know, Bitcoin can be mined in areas that aren't close to a power grid. You can start accessing this energy that's cheaper while using green energy. And that's has more investment in this green energy technology than would before. So I think eventually we're going to move into a majority of Bitcoin using green energy and driving investment, driving down costs, right? Making it more efficient as opposed to the opposite. The major problem with the environmental concern is that about 80% of the Bitcoin miners don't share data 
on exactly you know where their energy sources is from. So I think more transparency around that uh, will also be a, a large benefit for this industry. Well, I want to throw one more out there on the arguments against crypto. And this is sort of a big picture criticism that Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's deputy, said at the last Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting, and he called Bitcoin disgusting and bad for civilization. So pretty harsh there. How do you counter those kinds of big picture arguments? Yeah, so I think that could be leading into a few different aspects. It could be the energy piece, right? It was a little bit vague on what his thought processes on that. I think when you're looking at a disruptive technology, listening to value investors sometimes isn't the best. So I think it's a lack of due diligence and actual understanding on, you know, how this technology works, what's happening on the ground floor, right? What are those characteristics, the ones I laid out at the beginning of this? So I think that's what it's a factor of. You know, Munger and uh, Warren Buffett didn't invest in tech stocks, even though they've been form, you know, performing extremely well over the past 20 years. So I think it's just a factor of from a philosophical investment standpoint, it doesn't fit the bill. So there, you know, he's obviously going to have negative comments on it uh, from that perspective. As you said, there's been a lot of volatility in the crypto market recently, but there's sort of always or generally a lot of volatility in crypto. Do you think that's just sort of part of crypto's DNA or was there something new happening there? Yeah, so this this is fairly normal, but I think one of the most interesting trends, um, and this kind of goes into the store value, is that volatility is compressing and will continue to compress over time as it becomes more widely adopted, right, as that store value. And this is more Bitcoin specifically. So if you look at it every year, volatility has actually decreased, even though there are these short term uh, periods of, you know, this crazy volatility. So what we're hoping is that over the next five to 10 years, volatility for Bitcoin matches something similar to gold and will actually be viewed as that defensive store value asset. But for the digital age and for the digital economy, as opposed to gold, which is more for a physical and analog world. So that's where we believe we're heading there. And how do you think advisors should address the volatility question for investors who are nervous by it? Yeah, so I think this is a great question. I like to view Bitcoin as a alternative investment similar to private equity funds or real estate which it has a low correlation right to traditional investments, but you should look at it as an illiquid asset like those other alternative investments. So we view this more as a venture capital play. If you typically invest in private companies, private equity or venture capital, you're locked up for five to 10 years. We think you should actually look at Bitcoin that way. And then you can have a lot stronger of a opinion on, hey, this is going to be volatile, but we're looking at this from a five to 10 year time horizon, not a, hey, we think Bitcoin's going to go up over the next six to 12 months. So let's allocate five, 10% of the portfolio. We don't want to work with advisors that think like that. We really want investors and advisors that have a longer term holding period and understand that you know this is something that has uh, long-term you know, uh, supply-demand moving towards it. Obviously, a lot of the macro environment, that adoption piece from both a retail and institutional perspective. So there are going to be periods of volatility. And if it's something that you and your clients can't stomach, this probably isn't you know, the best investment for you. So that's how we typically work with advisors on clients um, in terms of you know, that volatility piece. All right. So, Chris, you outlined earlier why Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two cryptocurrencies we should probably think about. But Are there any other cryptocurrencies we should be considering? And if not, what's the criteria that you're looking for for us to start considering it? And lastly, what about, if I can even pronounce it correctly, Dogecoin? I I get many questions about Dogecoin that I think is about Bitcoin itself. Three questions in one. How about that? That's a value play. So maybe I'll address the Dogecoin one first. 
I think it's a complete, you know, meme coin similar to, you know, GameStop and AMC and all of those things, kind of the Reddit crowd. There's very little fundamental value it from a you know, technology infrastructure security perspective. So uh, we advise clients not, you know, not to consider it uh, from an investment standpoint, as we do think uh, it's going to you know, lose a lot of its value once these investors get washed out as it really is just a meme coin similar to the meme stocks that we saw earlier this year. So we advise clients, you know, against uh, looking at that and just a little bit of investment diligence, you'd realize that. So that's kind of how we talk to clients about that. Can you remind me your the other? Yeah, other cryptocurrencies we should be considering right now. And if not, what's the criteria for us to start considering them? Yeah, so I think I can talk more about the sectors as opposed to the specific coins. So I think the largest one, which is also tied to what the uh, investment thesis is for Ethereum, is decentralized finance, DeFi, which if you think about what it actually is, it's uh, creating a banking system, lending, borrowing, yield, trading, derivatives, things like that, that is completely automated and trustless. So instead of me giving my money to a bank and them loaning it out, I actually lend it directly through the DeFi protocol and I can generate a higher yield, say right now somewhere between seven and 10%, as opposed to getting you know less than 2% of my money on the bank. So it kind of disintermediaries the bank, but there are, you know, there is smart contract risk to that. There's counterparty risk. There's things like that that you need to understand how it works, custody things along that nature. But we've seen, I think, at the beginning of 2020, less than a billion dollars worth of value was locked in DeFi, meaning actually, you know, being lent down DeFi. Now it's over a hundred billion, which is why a lot of these DeFi protocols, right, the lending protocols, the stable coins, things like that have increased in value over the past 12 months. So I think that's one area uh, to watch is, is DeFi and the different lending protocols, insurance protocols, you know, decentralized exchanges, things like that. That's kind of one aspect. And most of that is being built on Ethereum. The other aspect is that there are competitors to Ethereum trying to be that base layer. So different DeFi projects are also building on other types of layer one protocols like Ethereum. That's Cardano, Solana, things like that. So those are kind of other ones to look at if you want to make a bet from the bottom layer perspective. The other one that I think is extremely interesting is uh, distributed or decentralized computing. A few names there are Filecoin and storage. What they're trying to do is build basically an edge computing network that's completely decentralized, that's competing with Google Cloud, AWS, Microsoft Azure. I think that's still at the very early stages because there's security concerns, durability, performance concerns, understanding of exactly how the technology works in terms of retrieving data and CDN and uptime. But I believe as those network gets built out, I think those could be really interesting um, and cheaper alternatives than using uh, AWS or Google Cloud or Azure or things like that. So I'd say those are really the main areas that we're looking at. The other ones have to do with uh, interoperability and scalability of the protocols. As I'm sure you can hear, people think, uh, have been saying you know, Ethereum has scalability issues as well as some of the other contracts. So there's different crypto asset networks that are trying to help increase the interoperability and scalability of the layer one protocols. So that's how I see you know other interesting areas in this crypto space um, you know to look at from a you know investment standpoint. That's great. You know, I already think after hearing you talk about some of that, you know, I have to admit most of the times when I listen to 
you know, replays of the Weighing Machine podcast, I usually listen to it at like 1.4, 1.6 times speed. I think on that last section, I might listen to it at regular speed or even slower so I can take notes. That's what I'm thinking. Well, another question I have is, so of course we're called the weighing machine. So the whole concept is that the market short term is about emotion, expectations, stories and narratives, which seems to be a great way to be talking about, you know, cryptocurrency movements in the short term. But over the long term, of course, markets are ultimately about, you know, valuations and fundamentals. So when we come back to cryptocurrencies, how do we analyze it? How do we determine intrinsic value? Is there a role for fundamental analysis, technical analysis? I mean, in short, how do we analyze cryptocurrencies? Yeah, and I think this is also a driver of volatility. And one of the most difficult things when we're talking to traditional investors, right, and CIOs, is they just say, hey, there's no cash flows associated with it. There's no agreed upon fundamental valuation methodologies. How do we even consider thinking about is this overvalued or undervalued? Uh, from an investment standpoint, portfolio allocation standpoint. So how we view it, I would say from Bitcoin's perspective, is relative value towards other store value assets. That's gold, right, at 10 to 11 trillion, uh, global M2 at 40 trillion, and then other financial assets at around 266 trillion. And you'd say, okay, what percentage of these assets do we think over the next 10 years that Bitcoin can uh, take capital from. And that's kind of how you can come to a methodology where you can say, okay, I think because it's a much better store value than gold and it has stronger utility um, and it's digitally native and it's a lot easier to send and store, it has a viral loop. I think it can take 50%, so pick 50% of gold's current value. So that would get you around a $5 trillion valuation from relative perspective, because there's not really a way to use you know the mining fees or anything like that to actually look at where it's coming from, because the investment case is that it's going to store wealth. So say, okay, where is capital going to move from other stores of wealth to Bitcoin? So you have to look at it from a, a relative valuation for that. Ethereum, I think there's a little bit more quantitative analysis that you can do based on you know, the applications and the transaction fees on top of Ethereum. How many people are going to actually need to hold Ethereum to start using some of these decentralized financial products, right? So how's that going to drive demand? So it's really just the supply and demand, um, and you can do it that way. So I think that's the biggest problem is that some of the smartest people in the world are trying to figure out, hey, what are the valuations of this? Why is it so volatile? Where is this price discovery happening? And on an upside scenario, if this is mainstream adopted, right, billions of crypto users around the world for both Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these other types of protocols, what would the value of these be, right? So that's kind of what people are trying to figure out now. And I think that's that's why there's so much volatility is because there's no fundamentally agreed upon valuation methodologies. The most prominent one for Bitcoin is stock to flow which is just a measure of, of the supply of Bitcoin over time. And Bitcoin's incremental supply decreases every four years. But I think it factors out a little bit of the demand quotient. So it's just difficult to actually look at that and say, OK, I, I think just based off supply and gold's you know, stock to flow ratio, I think Bitcoin's going to be at this price in you know three to five years time horizon. So I think that's one that there's a you know that has the biggest following from Bitcoin's perspective. But you know, it's just it's still difficult because there's no clarity around it. Well, Chris, um, as you said earlier in the podcast, advisors need to know how to talk about crypto with their clients. So if you were to sum it up in a few talking points, what would you offer for advisors? Yeah, so I think you can sum it into three talking points. One, Bitcoin is digital gold and it's taking market share from gold. That's kind of one talking point that we see a lot using you know, Bitcoin 
is digitally native and millennials have adopted it as their store value because they're a digitally native generation. It has built in network effects and has a higher upside than gold. So that's kind of one piece. The second is from the macro perspective. While Bitcoin is programmed to quantitatively tighten, all the central banks around the world are quantitative easing. So it's on these divergent paths. So from a macro perspective, holding one of these scarce assets that's actually quantitatively tightening, it can accrue in value from a long-term supply demand perspective. So that's the, the second piece. The third is that it's an alternative investment that is actually a portfolio diversifier because from a long-term perspective, it has a low correlation to you know, global equities, fixed income, commodities, and other traditional financial assets. So it can actually help diverse a portfolio. So those are kind of the three key points. And then also having both the you know defensive characteristics as a store value, being scarce, being independent, you know, having low correlation, as well as having the upside of taking market share from gold and fiat currencies, it can be both a defensive and offensive asset at the same time. So I think that was four. I was trying to give three, but that, you know, I think just you want to give as much you know high level bullet points for advisors to, to talk about it with clients so they can be articulate and you know lay out the value proposition of owning this in their portfolio at this time. And how would you recommend that investors actually invest in crypto, and uh, how would they size their positions? Yes, yeah, so I think there's it depends on the investor's profile. If you're investing ten million and up, you're not going to do it on a uh, Robinhood app or something like that, right? You'd probably do it with an institutional manager or institutional custodian, which would be different from someone that, you know, was investing five to 10,000 that probably be using oh, Coinbase or Robinhood. I'm obviously biased because I run uh, an SMA platform that's an access play for advisors who want to invest in this emerging asset class. So I think we have a great solution. I think it really just depends on how you're looking to invest. Are you looking to do it through your RIA? Are you looking to do it from an institutional perspective? Do you want to do it self-directed? And then there's different options to access this asset class that way. In terms of position sizing, we look at it from, well, I guess anecdotally, I can tell you that the advisors that we work with, when they add it to client portfolios, their average position size is actually between three to 4%. So that's what we're seeing in the market right now. Um, but we're actually putting together some research and providing recommendations to CIOs on saying, hey, we believe at this time in the market where we are on the cycle, I think X percentage makes sense to put you know, in Bitcoin and crypto in a discretionary portfolio. So we're doing some work with some investment committees and CIOs on that. But just from, you know, the data that we have, it's between three and 4% in client portfolios. We do not recommend anything over 10% because this is a speculative asset class, right? It's not productive. You know, it's extremely volatile. Like we saw that 40% drop. So, you know, sizing it correctly, I think is really important, but it also is an asymmetric investment, right? Over a five-year period, we think it can go five to 10 times. But the downside is obviously 100% loss of capital because it is a speculative, non-productive asset. So looking at it from an asymmetric standpoint, saying, okay, if I put you know three to 4% in and the upside scenario happens, that's great for my portfolio. If the downside scenario happens, it's not going to crush me because it's only you know 3%. So we're seeing a lot of advisors actually gravitate towards the, hey, this is an asymmetric investment. This is a liquid venture capital investment that's going to be put in my alternative investment portfolio, the clients that I work with on this know the risks of the investment. 
First of all, I think that frame of reference of three to four percent is is super handy, and I think a white paper on that topic would probably be pretty well received. Also, had me thinking too. I bet this hasn't really been a driver of any volatility yet, or at least it hasn't popped up in my mind. Is just the concept of rebalancing. The asset class is so much volatility that you know I would imagine after a great run and we come into a month end or a quarter end that would put some selling pressure on the asset class. So probably something to consider down the road. When it comes to you know the buying and selling of cryptocurrencies, I guess another really important question are the tax considerations. What should investors keep in mind from a from a tax standpoint investing in cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so I think this is the most one of the biggest misconceptions and something that's not well known is that Bitcoin is not a security. It's actually treated as property, which on the capital gain side, it's treated just as capital gains, obviously short term, long term. But there's actually no wash sale rule because it's taxed as property. So there's major opportunities for tax optimization and tax loss harvesting in these volatile periods where if you're you know, say you had 100 grand in Bitcoin, it went down 30%. You can sell that lot of Bitcoin, buy back another lot, you know, within a few minutes. And with minor slippage, you can have that short-term tax uh, loss to defer taxes at the end of the year, which can be extremely advantageous. Now, we closely monitor the tax code and if there are any changes, but this is actually very clear on, you know, how this is taxed as property as opposed to, you know, Bitcoin being labeled as security. And the same is true for Ethereum as well. Clever. It's almost, it almost seems like it almost should be in a taxable account given the volatility and the opportunity to tax manage around it. You could actually create tax off over time in the asset class. Very interesting. All right. Here's another question. So and I think this is another question a lot of people have, particularly me having spent so many years in the ETF industry. Do you have a guess when we might see a 40 act fund, whether a mutual fund or ETF that just invest in cryptocurrencies? Could you even guess? Yeah. So I would say most likely not this year. I would say mid to late 2022. And I think the reasoning for that is that the SEC wants to see this cycle play out, right? Because some people still don't know, are we in a bull market? Are we in a bear market? Are we six to 12 months from our top? Are we going down right now? That coupled with the high increase in volatility, potential price manipulation, not being a great, you know, super strong futures markets, which, you know, the pricing could potentially be based off that. So I think that given where we are on the market cycle, I think the SEC actually announced last two weeks ago that they were going to actually take a step back from, you know, moving forward with the approval. So I would say mid to late 2020 as when we'd see a Act 40 fund. But if you believe that's the timeline, investing now would actually make that a strong driver uh, from an institutional perspective if you're looking at this more from a short-term perspective. So that's also a driver of, you know, why allocate now? Because when an ETF is launched, we believe, you know, that will move in uh, a large amount of capital into this asset class, into Bitcoin specifically. Well, Chris, can you tell us some resources that you would recommend for investors who want to learn more about digital assets and stay on top of crypto news? Yeah, so I think some great people to follow in this industry is Nick Carter and Raul Paul. They both are you know, fairly successful and they have really good explanations on the different things going in the market. Uh, for example, you know, the ESG and, and environmental concerns or how this fits into your portfolio from a macro perspective. So I recommend following those two proponents in this industry, as well as from a news perspective. I think the block has very good news. There's a lot of noise on Twitter, right? A lot of noise on Reddit, you know, and CNBC and all these places. I think kind of going towards those crypto focused news sites really helps drown out that news and get a lot of signals. So I would say the blocks a very good news site as well as Blockworks. 
So those are two editorial news sites that has daily updates on price action, you know, institutions moving into the market, uh, longer term research um, and educational material. So I would say, you know, those are the, the two sources of news that I, I use in the space. So you said the block B-L-O-C-K? Yes. Yeah. And then Nick Carter and Raul Paul. Yes. Okay, cool. So would I just duck, duck, go those names or do they have Twitter feeds or? Yeah, so they, they have Twitter feeds. Raul Paul had, uh, runs a firm called Real Vision that a lot of the advisors that we work with actually subscribe to. So that's one piece. And then the block is a, they have a Twitter, but it's more of an editorial news site specifically for Bitcoin and crypto news. Well, Chris, it's been really great to having you on the show today. And I know that you also have a really informative weekly blog. How can listeners access it and learn more about your firm? Yeah, so you can go on www.eaglebrookadvisors.com. And if you're an advisor and want to learn more about the platform, you can schedule a call. If you want to receive our weekly insights, you can uh, scroll to the bottom and put your email in to receive our weekly market commentary insights, our longer research pieces and white papers. So yeah, just go to our site and sign up. Great. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. It's a fascinating topic. I think it's going to be very well received by the podcast audience as well. And it feels like we need to have you back like on an annual basis, but then again, probably a quarterly basis. I mean, this SASA class is moving so fast, but thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Robin. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.